Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you heard about somewhere once. This is trying not to try too hard. Thank you for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Megan Steelstra. Her new essay collection is called Once I Was Cool, and it's now available from Curbside Splendor. Megan and I will be talking in just a second. Uh, moments ago, about an hour ago, I was out having lunch with a friend. That's what's going on in the most uh, immediate part of my personal history. Uh, this friend of mine is moving soon. She's moving across the country to New York City, as people from Los Angeles sometimes do, and vice versa. And uh, so I took her out to lunch to kind of say farewell and to wish her well on her way. And uh, we sat there talking, and uh, you know, we're talking about the move and how chaotic moving is and how stressful and the boxes and uh, the long list of shit to do. And then, you know, it started to get a little bit deeper and it, you know, you start to talk about all the people that you're going to leave behind when you move and what's going to happen to those friendships. And then she 
you know, in sort of like a stoic, realistic uh, frame of mind, said that she's likely only going to be able to take a small handful of these friendships with her into her future, which seems depressing, but is probably accurate. And so uh, this got me thinking, and I started talking about friendships, especially in the context of adult life, which I think, you know, for whatever reason, friendships in adult life are harder. I have a young kid. My daughter's three. You put a bunch of three-year-olds on a playground, they're instantly friends. They've never met each you know, they've never met each other before. And the first thing they say is like, oh, let's play. That's it. And yeah, you know, kids are fucked up too. <laughs> they can be moody and they can be mean. They can, uh, you know, beat up on each other and tease one another and everything that, you know, they're human beings, but they have a much easier time of it socially than we do as adults. So I just, you know, I think it needs to be simpler. I wish it were simpler, but you know, you think about friendships. I have, I have a lot of friends. I feel like I'm a, you know, I want to have a lot of friends. I try to be a friend to people, but the older I get, the more things going on in my life. I'm a dad. I got work, uh, money, blah, blah, blah. You know, it takes energy and time to maintain these relationships. And so it can get to feeling like, yeah, I have friends, but we text sometimes I see everybody sporadically you got to nurture this stuff. It's hard to feel like really connected when that's all you're doing. And you live in a big city you know, like Los Angeles. It's just like a logistical undertaking just to get together with people who live in disparate neighborhoods. And you have to talk about traffic and timing and schedules and calendars and, you know, and then you do get together and then there's always the risk of like offending people somehow. You know, not that I'm, hopefully I'm not super offensive, but you know, adults are delicate. Our minds are delicate. We can get offended by body language. We get offended by something someone says or doesn't say. We get worried. Things start to fracture. We get trapped inside of our heads. We judge one another. You know? Like, I think I was thinking about this uh, as I was driving home accidentally offending people or, you know, inadvertently offending somebody by, by what you say or do or fail to say or fail to do. This is one of the funniest and uh, saddest aspects of uh, human existence, especially adult human existence. Accidentally offending people like badly, (laughs) you know, hurting someone's feelings and not even knowing it. It's so awful, but there's something inherently funny about it too. It's because it's just so tragic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, sometimes it happens and then you realize it after the fact or the person's behavior changes. And so you, you put the, you know, the puzzle pieces together and then it gets to be stressful. And then I think you can find yourself saying, well, fuck this. This is too complicated. People trying to interact with people is too complicated. And so then you recoil and uh, you say, I'm just going to go home. And I'm just going to look at the internet. I'm just going to go back to having texting relationships. And you wind up becoming over-insulated. It's not healthy. So, I don't know. I don't know what my point is. I've talked about this before. I'm fascinated with the, the way language affects human behavior, human relationships, and how careful you need to be with language and behavior. You know, being awake when you're interacting with people, not getting all locked up inside of your head, making sure 
that you know what you're doing. Because if, if you're not uh, awake at the wheel, you can accidentally offend people. You take the wrong tone. You say things you regret. You make a stupid joke. Plus, like, people are touchy. <laughs> you know, we all get so offended. We need to cut one another more slack. I need to cut people more slack. People need to cut me more slack. Everybody needs to cut everybody more slack, it seems like to me. We're a flawed, deranged species. Of all the species on earth, what a fucked up species we are. <laughs> I'm not proud of us. I'm not proud of, I'm not proud to be human. And I'm proud of that. If that makes any sense. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again, ladies and gentlemen, is Megan Steelstra. I had a great talk with her. Uh, she's a real delight. She's got a new book out. It's called Once I Was Cool. It's available now from Curbside Splendor. It's an essay collection, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is. This is Megan Steelstra, and the new book, once again, is called Once I Was Cool. Uh, I am in Chicago. I'm, I work at Columbia College Chicago. I have a day job in faculty development, so I'm in this little conference place where sometimes I'll meet with teachers and we'll talk about all the crazy things that are going on in their class. But it's an art school, so um, there's student work all over the walls, and I'm looking at a picture of a dude in an uh, orange, like, full-body um, garage mechanic jumpsuit who is on, but kind of only has one leg, and he looks like he's trying to fly. Wait, he has one leg? He's a one-legged... <laughs> What? Well, I'm I'm not sure. I'm you know it it's meaningful. It means something. It's, okay. It's 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 significant in the greater artistic scheme of something or another. I I don't know. Like it looks it looks like he's got like a like the the leg on the garage mechanic thing is is tied. You know, like up at the knee, so it's kind of oh right dangling okay. in the air. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So Chicago, good place. I love Chicago. I, whenever I talk to somebody from Chicago, I always have to say that I love I love that city. That's great. Well, we we need the love right now. It is gray. It is gray, and we are and we are tired, and we are getting pissed. I took the train in this morning, the red line, and you can just like see the the fury building in in everybody now that it's it's May and it is still like this. So yeah. so we need the love. We'll take it. We'll take it. And the sunshine and it, the booze. Right. Well, it's about to get good. I feel like when you know when Chicago's good, it's great. 
It's like it, when the weather's great, there's no, there's no place better. And, and is this is this your hometown for life, or have you did you know did you live elsewhere? It, this this is it. You know, I I moved here kind of like almost twenty years ago. So I've been told by you know born and raised Chicagoans that I can call myself a Chicagoan, and I've made sure to ask permission because you know you don't want to piss anybody off with, with that kind of well, what's the with cut, that kind of thing. What's the cutoff? Oh God, I I don't know. I have never asked any born and raised Chicagoans what what the cutoff might be. I don't know. I I think it might be an attitude yeah. thing, and I, I I hopefully I have. I have adopted it by yeah, but Chicagoans. I mean, and not to say that Chicagoans are just like milk toast, you know, empty suits. But like, the, there's not a lot of like. Ch- I mean, is there chip on the shoulder in Chicago? I feel like people are so nice there. That's why I like it. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, you you walk down the street and you ask people you, people how they are, and they they say that they're great and they mean it. You know, for for the most part, and that's not something that I've always experienced in living in other places. So. Right. Um, well, but then again, like my wife is from Minnesota. They have the whole Minnesota nice thing. And like, that's like, you know, there's some menace to that as Fargo pointed out, you know, behind that. It's that. true. Are you watching that show right now? No, I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? It's good. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, I'm really into the binge television. So yeah, it, it's hard right now because like I can only get it once a week. And of course I want to watch all of them always right now. And I want to stay up for 24 hours and, and, you know, drink coffee for 12 of them and then bourbon for the, the other 12. And, and so I'm, I'm feeling really impatient. I just watched the most recent episode last night. It's awesome. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, are you, cause I'm, I'm into the binge watching as well. I, and, and you're a, a parent, aren't you? You have kids, right? I am. Okay. So uh, you, you, well, kid singular me too me too but still like it's you know it's a it's a commitment and so it makes it my point that i'm driving at is that it makes it harder to carve out time for uh watching anything (laughs) movies television going to movies reading books like i find myself like the other uh day you know i was in the i was in transit i was on an airplane and i started reading a book and i was like my god like i haven't like read in a sustained like three hour block like that in a long time, just because it's hectic. Like, you know, like how do you, how do you manage that? Are you able to do it? I'm, I'm sitting here nodding. That's the hardest thing with podcasts is like, I'm sitting here nodding to everything that you're saying and you can't, you can't see my head bobbing around. <laughs> if your, your child is little, little, three. how, how old are we talking? Three. three. Going, yeah. Okay. Mine, well, mine, mine just turned six. And so that is easier now, like I'm, I'm try. I, I recently stayed with, um, with my sister in San Francisco, and my nephew is three, and I was like, man, I forgot three. Like three is in the trenches. You are in it. Um, six is a six is a little easier. So the um, so the naps are gone. So the bedtime, you know, I mean, everybody has their own crazy parenting situation, but at least in our house, bedtime's happening easier and faster now. So um, so there's more time like glorious mind-blowingly amazing time which before it feels like i would i would guard that stuff so closely like you know every half an hour is like the last canteen in the desert and then now it, it <laughs> it's 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 easier it's easier to say okay i have four hours here to write this thing i have five hours here to read this book i have 12 hours here to watch the new season of house of cards you know so it's um it's, it, it's easier. It right. gets better. Well, you know, I, and I should say like it's travel when I'm like in an enforced restricted space, like buckled in. And then the other thing that I've uh, found is that I was able to watch the entire season of house of cards when I was like deathly ill last summer with the flu. 
So like that was the upside of being ill was that I was like bedridden and it was like so bad that we wanted to get, I wanted to get my kid out of the, out of the house because I didn't want her to get it. So I sent my wife uh, away for the weekend. <laughs> I, I, uh-huh. I, I quarantined myself and then I had nothing to do. And I just lay there in bed and watched like, you know, however, 14 episodes consecutively. It was, mm-hmm. it was ridiculous yep. and it was sort of wonderful. But um, when it comes to your book and, uh, you know, working in the essay form, I'm curious to know if you feel like there's a corollary between uh, your interest in and gravitation toward that form and the demands of like parenthood and working a job. And, you know, because it's a shorter form, you can kind of like chip away at one and finish these, um, you know, individual pieces and have that sense of completion. Mm -hmm. Is there any connection there? Absolutely. And I think especially with this book that it's, it's coming out this weekend and all of the, most all of the pieces that that are in it were written in the the first five years after I had my son. And it was definitely like the, okay, I have 20 minutes here, so I'm going to kick this out. And I have, you know, and I I have an hour over here or I'm commuting on the train for an hour. So I'm going to try to finish it at at this time. And you just grab, you know, you grab every second that, that you can. And, um, so the, the essays are pretty short in the book and even within the essays, they're kind of in shorter segments, many of them. And, and I think that that was direct connection to my lifestyle at the time. It, it's only been very recently that I've been able to kind of get into the brain space of longer, of longer work again. And I think that that's part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Cause I'm in the same sort of headspace where it's like short bursts, short bursts, you know? Like, yep. So yep. Were you ever writing on your phone? Oh, that's a good question. No, no. I, I think research on the phone for sure. Um, like I, I would have a question and, you know, to, to be able to say to, um, you know, to like different social media, you know, kind of communities in my life, Hey, here, you know, here's the, what, what's your, I, I was living across the street from the Aragon. It's a, it's a rock club in Chicago at the time. And, and so the first essay in the book is about, is about the Aragon. So just even saying like, okay, who has an Aragon story? And then I get like, 40 responses of, you know, I got kicked in the face during Slayer. It was awesome. I got peed <laughs> on at Faith No More, you know, people. And, you know, and, and so, uh, so a, a lot of that, like, kind of. Did somebody actually get peed on during a Faith No More concert? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, again, the, the great thing about social media is, like, I can trace right back to that tweet. I don't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook, but but I did screenshots of all that stuff. And um and so, so like how that research comes into to play um, was was kind of huge. But if you mean writing, as in like, like do I have apps for writing or, or making lists? You know, like I, I keep lists of different ideas that I want to work on yeah. on the phone. But but for the most part, I still like the, the stuff all starts um, hard copy. So the, the at least at least for me, like um, long like hand long hand or you type yeah 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 okay but yeah that's that's what I meant like well, long, no. like. Like in a moleskin kind of a thing, because in my brain, like once I put it in the computer, then it's work. Like this is serious work where I'm trying, yeah, uh, you know, create a you know contribute to a greater dialogue in the world. And man, just work like that is a total kind of Jedi mind fuck of must be perfect. So at least I, I need to start in a place where I can make a mess. And it can be like play. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cause I've been, you know, I, I, I shouldn't, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this because I haven't done it enough to really, uh, say that it's the, like, it's like a thing for me, but I went through a period where I tried to write while walking. Um, <laughs> uh, like, well, it went okay. Cause I was like on my phone, I was not anywhere near traffic. You know, I was like up in the, in the Hills here in Los Angeles. And I was like, okay, I'm just mm-hmm. going to like on the way down. Um, you know, when I feel like I'm not going to like run into something or walk off of a cliff or something like I'm going to, 
I'm just going to like try to focus. And then I would get to the bottom and I would sit for a little bit and I would just write on my phone. But it was the same kind of thing where I was just away from my computer. And I guess I could have theoretically gotten online, but like it was like a way of being unplugged and then unreachable and isolated somehow. And I don't know, Mm -hmm. it it worked for a short spell. But I, I wonder how many writers out there are doing that. And then I also heard you talk about like doing research with the phone and like a- taking queries of friends. And um, uh-huh. I, was, I was talking to uh, Leslie Jameson recently, and she was talking about a particular essay that she wrote where she like crowdsourced the essay by mm-hmm. turning to certain writer friends and asking them a, a particular question and then, you know, uh, curating the responses and incorporating them into the work. Like there, there are ways uh, to use this technology in interesting, in an interesting manner, uh, in literature, you know, you can get creative with it. Do you, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I, well, I, I mean, it, we're, if we are writing the world that we live in now, that's part of the world that we live in now, or, you know, that I'm living in now. And so it doesn't really seem right to me to be writing about this time period without, I, I mean, in, in part using the tools, but also to, just to, to be aware of how they're, they're showing up in the, in the art in some way. Like I, well, I teach a novel and story class, and, and one of the, the texts that we use is uh, from the Goon Squad. And, and you know, that, that's a huge thing that, that is talked about in all sorts of different um, kind of responses to that text is just it it speaks to this time period. It speaks to 2012, 2013, 2014, and, and how, how we're using the, the technology. And I, I think that that's something that we're keep seeing again and again in the, in the work in different ways. I, I was part of this anthology last year. It's called Friend Follow Text. The, the the pieces within it were some kind of response to social media, you know. So there's different stories in there about online dating and about Facebook and about Twitter. And, and um, I was commissioned for Instagram, All right? So the editor was like, "So, what do you got about Instagram?" And to just kind of sit and stare at this, you know, at this this thing on my phone and try to figure out like what what it means for me and you know how am I intaking it as a individual, you know, to, to the point that I want to comment on it in, in my work in some way. And I think that that was one of the first times that I really kind of sat very still and quietly and tried to actually think through what, um, so what are you, that are you an, tool meant. Are you, are you an Instagrammer? Are you like, which ones? Do I you, am. You do you use them? Are you Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole thing? And those three primarily. See, a whole other part of this conversation is that my husband is a blogger. So our, our kind of, you know, my, my rent is, paid by these sources and you know in in some in some way you know they they help spread the work and and then that comes around to supporting my family so it's like this whole other kind of level you know not just i mean how am i using this stuff in my social life or how am i using this with networking or promotion um but also just basic you know i'm going to the grocery store because neil patrick harris repeated or retweeted something last night Did, did neil patrick harris retweet something of yours he does not mine of uh on, has an art blog called Colossal that gets uh happily a lot of traffic. It's really awesome. Oh cool. Okay. So um yeah, I mean there, I mean that's the thing. Like I I got out of Facebook. It was eating up too too much of my time. I'm not I can't go into Instagram. I I feel like you have to carve out time for these things and they, and they really they drain me in some weird way and I feel annoyed, but like uh you know, you you can use them to good effect to get the word out if you're strategic about it, and if you can be disciplined about like not sitting there getting sucked in mindlessly. <laughs> okay. I think so. I also think so. I'm a I'm a teacher, and and that's where my students are, and I would like to 
to be where they are and to, you know, to use the resources where they are and in some kind of a way. So, so trying to kind of educate myself about, you know, how, how, how they're being used and how they might be able to come back in the classroom and in some way is kind of a, an interesting well, pl- yeah, plus thought your, process for me too. Well, plus your kid. I mean, wait, is your kid on Facebook yet? <laughs> he, he is not, although, um, it, I will, I'll put up things that he says sometimes. And it's interesting, like, I, you know, I, I can put up a, a post about, hey, I have this book release party tomorrow. And then you get like this, yay. And then I put up a thing that my six-year-old said, and then, you know, 400 people like it. And it's, <laughs> it's um, so, I mean, again, it's it's interesting to see the, the reactions. Although, I mean, I, I, I am in kind of reaching a point with him where uh, I'm, I ask him now before I put something up, like he'll say something and I'll say, can I, can I tell the internet that, that you just said that? And, um, and he's still saying yes for now, but I, I he's going to start saying no. And then, and then that'll be that. Um, although re- recently I said, can I tell the internet you said that? And he said, yes, but don't tell the police. <laughs> like, where the hell did that come from? Um, Smart but I spent a lot of time thinking about that. He is, he is, he's awesome, but I'm biased. So, well, it's hard not to be when it's you know. It is. I get it. it. So, uh, how did like how did you get into this racket? What, what's uh, what's your history with literature? Well, I think books first. I, I was the. I, I guess I mean that's that's everybody's first answer, right? Um, but I, I was the so I was a special kind of geek who would cut class in order to hang out in the library, um, <laughs> and uh, and I would just sit on the floor and I would read all these books and and it didn't really occur to me at the time that I would write them, I, I just thought, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a professional reader when I grow up. Somebody's going to pay me to sit on the floor and, and read all of these things all day. Cause that's a thing, right? Like that's a job <laughs> somewhere. Um, so I, I went to journalism school because I thought that somewhere in there, uh, like that, it, at least, you know, when I went away to college in, in 1993, like that was a thing, like that, that was a supposedly like a thing that you could do to, sure. Where'd you go to, to school? make money. Uh, well, I I started at Boston University, and I realized very quickly that it was not the place for me, nor was journalism the the field for me. But I, I didn't know what to do because I had the scholarship, you know, and I needed it. So I did a little research, and I found out that the scholarship would carry if I went to an American school overseas. So I went to Italy, and I sat around, and I took European literature classes, and I um, modeled naked and art, like, painting studios. I'm sure there are, like, tons of naked paintings of me around Europe, which, which is awesome. Which that, is awesome. Sounds, that sounds great. Boy, you, you, I didn't realize that you get a scholarship to Boston university, like an academic scholarship. Yeah. And why didn't you, so why, long as you why come did, back? Okay. So, but why didn't you like it there? What was wrong with it? Well, I, I think that it, it was, it, it wasn't so much Boston university as it was me, you know, and, and what, you know, I was 18 years old. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, I just knew that I wanted books. Uh, my parents, Back home in Michigan, we're splitting up. I had this boyfriend that didn't work out after high school. You know, like all the things. Also, my my college, my freshman roommate was super into the ecstasy. And so, like, there's a lot of rolling <laughs> happening in the dorm room. And it was like one of those little tiny dorm rooms where their bed is right next to your bed. And, you know, and if you're on E that much, you're not really sleeping. So it's just this crazy, crazy year. And I, I had a job in a kitchen in this Southwestern restaurant. And I was a, I was a food runner, right? Cause I was 18 years old. So I wasn't old enough to, to serve liquor. So I was a food runner. So it was my job to carry the food from the kitchen to the table. And there was a super, um, super like delicious, popular appetizer that were, it was fried jalapeno poppers. And I started counting the poppers, like counting how many poppers I was carrying across the room and how, 
many I would have to carry to pay, because I, I was on a partial scholarship, not a full, but like how many I would have to carry to, to pay the rest of what I paid. And then I would go to these classes and then I, I wasn't into the classes because I was 18 years old and my brain space was, was somewhere else. And then I thought, God, I cannot be carrying all these fucking jalapenos around to pay for this thing that I don't even want anyway. Right. And, and it's interesting because I always try to remember that me, you know, like that 18 year old me carrying these poppers around, like studying things that, that didn't you know, really make my heart beat at all. And, and, um, and I, I try to think about my students now and, and what they're going through when, you know, when they're that age and, and how their lives are so much bigger than my one little class a week. And, um, and what, what can I do in that time space to, um, to make it meaningful, meaningful for them and make it relevant for them and, and, and to their art. And anyway, I went over to Europe. So I mean, I, let's start. Let's lay. Yeah, I want to, I want to hear about that. Uh, you, yeah. you just picked Italy. Like what was the process of like deciding? I did. Um, I think that there was, it, you know, I, I would like to sound so fucking profound and tough with this, but the truth of the matter is there was a guy I had the hots for and he was super into Italy. So I was like, fuck, I'll, you know, I can totally, <laughs> I, I, I can take an Italian class. I can like totally get down with this. And so I went and he followed me. That's not a bad, then, it's not a bad place to go, Italy, right? It's not a bad place to go. And, and we got this apartment and where were you? And, the, and I was making, I was in Florence. Oh man. Beautiful. I was in Florence and it was amazing. It was amazing. And, and every day I would have to, I lived on one side of, the bridge, uh, Ponte Vecchio, and my school was on the other side. So every day I had this like commute. I had to take the bus into downtown, and then I would walk up. I would walk across this bridge, and it was so beautiful. And and I would have to walk past all these stores with like shoes and purses and clothes, and I'd never seen anything like it. And and I remember thinking, like in ten years I'm going to come back here, <laughs> and I'm going to have made it, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go shop. <laughs> and I was so excited because like at that point, like I was the girl, I mean, Salvation Army was my, was my department store. And, and so, um, although, you know, not when I lived in Europe, I mean, in Europe, I went over in a backpack and I came back with the same backpack. And I think it was like the same two pairs of corduroys and a pair of Chuck Taylors that I wore for a year. It was really not pretty. But anyway, so 10 years later, I go back to Italy and, I'm, and I have a credit card and I'm like, I'm going to buy some shit. And I went into some of those same stores, but it was, I, I hadn't known that those stores were like Dolce and Gabbana and that kind of thing. So now I'm walking in with my little credit card <laughs> and now I'm, I'm 29 years old and I'm still not going to buy anything. So I was like, right. in 10 years, <laughs> ten year- I'm coming back again. <laughs> and, and the, the next year will be, that time and maybe I will go in and I will buy a shoe Buy one shoe. Just one. And I will buy, I can totally buy, I can buy one fucking shoe. It'll be great. Uh, how long were you there for? I was there for a year. My sophomore year. Oh, okay. So you, um, that just gave you a, did you go back to BU after that? I did not. I, because I, I, that is when I figured out that I wanted to be a writer that year. You know, like I was always the girl who was writing in a journal, but I, I kind of, I, I think through all Italian literature classes, European literature classes, and um, and I found that, actually, I talk about this a little bit in, in Once I Was Cool, but I, I, I found a, a book of Kafka short stories in an English bookstore. And it, it seems so, you know, that I was like all reading Czech literature when I lived in Italy, but like I, 
just really like I, I remember reading those stories over and over and over again because um, it, it was one of the few books I actually owned. You know, you're 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 living out of a backpack. It, you can't really carry. You know, you can't carry your personal library. Um, I think like thinking about that time period is why I'm like so why I love my iPad so much now, you know, like I can carry right. 900 books in a, in a library and, you know, and that's been sort of like a, a theme because later in my life, I, I moved to Prague and, and we sent a giant box over and it took like three months for the, the box to show up the, the box of 60 books that I wanted to read that year. But so anyway, I keep getting ahead of myself. I was in Italy and, uh, I was reading Kafka. So I decided I wanted to be a writer guy I was with wanted to move to Chicago. So I applied to every school in the Chicago area. And uh, Columbia College gave me most cash. Okay. So I came here, and and that was sort of one of the moments where I kind of started to believe in fate a little bit. I, I think, like not in the moment, but later, sort of looking back, because the at the time that I came here, the way that the fiction department was set up was exactly what I needed. Being as young as I was, and as new as I was, and as scared as I was of of kind of entering into, you know, this, this job of a writer and, and showing my work to, you know, like taking it out of the journal, taking it out of the box under my bed and, and sharing it with people. And, um, the, the way that I was learning here was, a was incredibly profound for me. You know, um, the, the department was really focused on process over product and, and how does the work develop, you know, kind of from that first idea, um, all the way through to final drafts and, and you know, and what do you need to know about craft and, and about the drafting process and, and what does all of this stuff mean? And, and I'd never really thought about it that way. You know, I had thought about art or, or, you know, writing as an art form that was just in the final draft. Cause that's really all I ever saw, you know, in literature classes, I, I saw the final published copy. You never saw earlier drafts. You never saw what the writer went through, um, to get that on the page that way. It's interesting because you see that in other art forms, right? Like you see, um, you you see the the band being in the garage and jamming, you know, and like making all sorts of fucking noise to get to the the song that is going to play stadiums, and and you see the the first rehearsal of a play and how you know how much of a mess it is, and and how it's about like the ensemble building at, at the beginning and and that cast getting to know one another so they can work together, and and with writing it's kind of like hi here's the dead by James Joyce, right? Um, as opposed to here's here's everything that it. That that went through. Well, and who wants to read that anyway? Like the, all those messy drafts. <laughs> My God. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, not all of them, but man, like when I was studying writing, like I needed to see them. But I, I think it's really fascinating. Like when when you're um, when you're banging your head against the wall over the work, or when you're pissed off that it's not working the way that you want it to. Like to to look at writers that you love and and to be able to see that earlier drafts of theirs were not. Um, the, uh, the answer to Western literature, you right. know, they had to put in the, they had to put in the work to, to get it there. And so that, that was something that I needed to learn. And I think now as a teacher, that's something that I try, that well, I try to get across well, it's in some way. Point. It's a good point because it's like, I, I remember teaching and, um, it's like one of, I think it's one of the most important things to learn for anybody, whatever age you happen to be at. But you know, if you're early in the process of, of trying to become a writer, just like coming to grips with how hard the hard you have to work. I think mm-hmm. that's basically it. It's like, oh shit, you've got to write like 30 drafts. Like you, that's the, yeah, it's right. you got to be willing to live through, you know, a long period where the thing's going to suck and you're not going to know what you're doing. And like, you know, it's easy to kind of like understand it when somebody says it to you, but it's a, it's a different beast when you're actually in it and trying to do it. And, um, 
I think if you can get to that place, then you have achieved something. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And, and I think this is going to be a, a stretch, but to a certain extent, it's similar with parenting, right? Like everybody can try to tell you what it's like. Everybody can try to, to give you advice, but it, you never, I mean, you can't, you can until you're in it. Yeah. It's, it's entire, it's entirely different. It depends on where you're at in your life. It depends on the kid that you're dealing with. It depends on the amount of time that you have to work. It's, you know, there's all sorts of different, there's not, yeah, there's, different not, factors. there's not one experience. I mean, I guess there might be common threads, but it's a different beast for everyone. <laughs> yes. In yeah. Some ways. So, okay. So you, you moved to Chicago. You're ha- it sounds like you were much happier at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like it, it's, I think it's kind of, it's kind of a gift when you find the right place. I, I think a lot of times people spend their whole lives searching for creative communities in some way. And, and so I stumbled into one very accidentally and, um, you know, the, the guy and I were long over before I even got here. Uh, but I came anyway, and, and this is the place that I needed to be. What's in, still shocking for me, kind of looking back on it in retrospect, is I'm still here. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you haven't left. <laughs> I, I have not. Like, I came here. I finished my undergrad here. I loved what I was getting in the classroom, so I stayed through grad school. Uh-huh. Um, out of grad school, I got picked up to teach. And somewhere down in that long journey, I got picked up full-time to teach teachers. So it's been... Um, it's been a while. That's your home. But here we are. Yeah. Are you think you're going to be there for the rest of your career? Uh, in Chicago or at the, at the college? I, I don't, I mean, who knows? I mean, could it be like a I don't know. long thing? You have no idea. I guess that's, a, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and still like I've, I've bounced around a lot. So, it, um, so I was adjunct for a long time and you know, there is no, someone who is just an adjunct with one job. Like you are an adjunct and you have 900 jobs. Yeah. Um, so, so I taught here. Uh, I also taught at the University of Chicago. I teach now at Northwestern. Um, but for the first decade of, of that, I uh, was a bartender in a brunch restaurant. So I, I went to grad classes and I taught and I made Bloody Marys and served pancakes in the morning. And that is, um, that's how the rent got paid. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and you mentioned that you lived in Prague too. I did. Yeah. Yeah. My, my boss called me, my boss here at Columbia called me up one day and, and said, so we, we're going to do this study abroad program in Prague. Do you want to go teach Kafka classes? Which just like imagine getting that phone call. I think like I was out at the bar with some friends and I, I'd stepped out to, to take the call. And so like I'm on the street jumping up and down and screaming and, you know, which is, really not a big deal when you're on the street at two o'clock in the morning in Chicago to see a girl <laughs> jumping. But, you know, I was, I was screaming in, in a good screaming way. Cause I would hope if I was screaming in a shitty way, the whole world would stop and everyone <laughs> would come, would come like attack the ghosts right. that, were, that were coming. To me. Um, so I, I went, I started going to Prague in the summers and, and teaching Kafka classes, which was just mind blowingly amazing, right? Like you read through his journals and, and he talks about all these different places and we got to go to them. We got to go to those coffee shops and those bars and, and work there. And, um, and, uh, and there was one year, one summer where I, I was up on Petron Hill with some of my students and we were really drunk. Um, because at this point there were no rules about that. I, I <laughs> wager there are now, but um, anyway, uh, and, and I just looked down over the city and I thought, you know, I, I need to figure out what it might look like to move here. And, and then I went and got a tattoo to remind me of that, which, you know, I mean, getting a, a tattoo in Prague at 
two o'clock in the morning when you're drunk is not always, you know, it's probably not my most intelligent maneuver. Wait, but anyway, so, like, wait I, you, I, you did it right then? Under, like while you were inebriated? You're like, I'm, I'm marking my body with this now. Yes, yes. Yeah, which which actually, I mean, it, it sounds much more badass than, than it is. Or maybe it sounds completely ridiculous and, and awkward. I think it was maybe a little bit of all of those things. Like that actually might be a pretty good theme of my life, like ridiculous and awkward and maybe also badass. Like, um that that could maybe be the title of this podcast, actually. But um, so anyway, so I went and I got the tattoo, and then I went I went back to Chicago, and um, and it's crazy because just like six months earlier, I'd quit the brunch restaurant because I was finally making enough teaching where I could I could get by. But I got back from Prague, and I went back to the restaurant, and I said to my old boss, I was like, "Look, you need to give me one shift a week for a year, um, because I'm gonna." Uh, I'm just going to put that money away and I'm not even going to remember that it exists. So I did that. I, and, uh, and then, and then I, my, I flew back to, to teach Kafka that summer and I got off the plane and I had a return ticket for eight weeks later. And I walked over to the ticket counter and I asked them to change it to a year later. And that was you know, like I, I can still like hear like like if my life were a movie, that would be the moment where like the indie rock band would be playing really loudly. It's like I walked across, the, you know, like you walk across the airport and then the music comes on and and then you hand the ticket. But, you know, there probably the, the movie would end and it would just be like me doing that. And um, but yeah, I was there for a year That's and I awesome. didn't work because I'd, I'd saved all this money selling Bloody Marys because in Chicago brunch is a fucking religious experience. Like, you know, people, you know, you wait two, three hours for a table and you, and people pay 50, 60, 150 bucks for, for brunch. So, so I I was very um, lucky to have that place. Um, What was it called? It's called the Bongo room. There are three of them now. Okay. Uh, and and they have really amazing chocolate French toast. So if you're ever in Chicago, go there. All right. The people who work there are amazing, and uh, um, and I think that you know so much of what I've been able to do in my life is because I had I had a place where I could um, make sure that my rent got paid and make sure that my tuition got paid back, and and that I could you know sock away the you know. X amount of hundred of dollars I would need every month to pay health insurance out of pocket. And I could put money into an IRA, you know, like I, I kind of had that, that net to take care of me and to, to let me try to write and, and learn how to teach and fuck up and make a lot of mistakes, but to, to still be able to, to pay my own way. Okay. So yeah, I was going to ask about writing and how this figured in. Like when you went, to, I mean, I know you wanted to go to Prague because Prague's beautiful and it's living there for a year. Sounds like an amazing adventure. Oh no, I was writing there. That's uh, what I was doing. Exactly. So like you, you were yeah. going over, that was like a literary, like an explicitly literary adventure. I'm going to take a year and I'm going to write uh, the great, yes. was, it, was it the great American novel? What were you trying to write over there? Well, you know, I, I, I had a novel bounced around in my head. I had a, at the time I was primarily writing short stories. Um, that's, that's kind of my first love. And, uh, and so, you know, so I had all the plans of, you know, I'm going to get there and then I'm going to write 10 hours a day and I'm going to be a writer. Cause you know, I, I think that we have these ideas in our head of, of what a writer's life looks like. And it's these people and they're, they sit down in a cafe at nine o'clock in the morning and they order a cup of coffee. And then at 1 PM, they have a light lunch and they switch to wine and then they write until, you know, six o'clock and then they go read books all night and then, you know, rinse and repeat for the next 
hundred years and somewhere they have a, you know, an agent that they just, you know, they, they just hold up the papers and they hand it to them and then they run away. And maybe, maybe that's what a, a writer's life really looks like. I don't know. You know, I, it's certainly never been mine, but, but I thought it looked like that. And, and so I, I got there and I taught, um, cause you know, for the first eight weeks I was teaching, uh, and I was living with, with, you know, kind of in a pension with, with my students, with, with my department. And then I got my own apartment, uh, and I went to the cafe and I sat down and I ordered my coffee and I opened up my laptop and I'm like, all right, let's do this. And then I freaked out. <laughs> and I, I think that that's, and I, I've since heard about that moment, you know, in talking to a lot of different writers, like, like you set up these spaces in your life to get the work done. And then immediately kind of, there's this fuck kind of feeling of how am I going to do this? And, and sort of this like expansive stretch of time, and all of a sudden, you have all the time in the world to kind of dig into your process where before you were making work in whatever spare minutes you could between your jobs and between all these other things. So so I think the first thing that I figured out is that I, I needed to cut myself a little bit of slack and, and just realize that I was not going to I was not going to immediately be able to write for 10 hours a day yeah. that, that I needed to I needed to get to know this new aspect of my process in in different ways and. Um, it was a really interesting time in my life, like right, right before I left, um, I'd met another guy and it's so, it's like, I'm listening to my, I, I'm talking about like, you know, a couple of decades of my life here. I like the way that I'm telling this story so quickly with just like, and then I went here for guy and then I went, and then it makes me sound like a big old whore, which, which truly wasn't, which truly wasn't the case. But, but right before I left for Prague, I met this guy and, uh, and he ended up coming with me. And he was with me in Prague. And then I did this crazy thing. I married him. And now we have this awesome little kid. And so, um, oh, wait, so, it so that out. was actually a it pretty win-win situation. Like, it, that, that, that was a smart move on my part. It worked out. Holy cow. It did. I was, it did. Expe- I was expecting you yeah. to say, like, I got married. It was a disaster, but it worked. Uh, no, no. So did, it's, you, did, it's, you, did you meet great. him? You met him right before you... I met... Well, we did, he he was he's a Chicagoan, and we were well. Actually, he's a Texan, but then then after that, he was a Chicagoan. But we were we were friends in in Chicago. We were friends, and he had a girlfriend, and she was fine. She's perfectly fine. She was fine. But she <laughs> he had she she was a girl. She was a, a girlfriend, and he had a girlfriend. Right. So you know, so he could I could not be dating him because she was there. And then she wasn't there all of a sudden, and that was awesome. It was awesome when she was no longer there. So you were you uh, in, were you into him while he was dating her? But you're just like, oh, I can't. You know, it's not of course, work. I was not into him. He had a girlfriend. <laughs> you know, you do not like you respect that fucking shit. Like there, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, he he called me, and there's actually there's an essay in the book about this. He called me up one night, and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. It was like in January. He's like, we have to meet for a drink because me and the girlfriend just broke up. And I was like, yes, like, this is it. Like, he's <laughs> calling me because it's on, it's on. And then we got there and he's like, dude, like, I, I need to be single. Like, I'm not dating again until it's 82 degrees. And it was a blizzard. It was a blizzard. <laughs> and I was, I was moving to Prague in May. And I was just like, well, okay, this is like, this is, this is not going to happen. Uh, but then a, a month before I left in the end of April, it was 82 degrees when he go. showed up at the brunch restaurant and then, and then we moved to Prague and, and here we go. So anyway, well, when I was living in Prague, um, 
you know, that there was all of this, like, it, it was he and I together, and it was me trying to figure out to write, and it was us getting to know one another kind of in this new headspace. And, and that was really interesting, too, because, you know, like, when you start dating somebody, if things get weird, you can call up all of your girlfriends, and you can go out, and you can drink nine pitchers of margaritas and be like, when he said that, what did he mean? <laughs> and then you all sit around and you unpack it. Right. But I mean, when we were in Prague, we didn't have that. Right. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't call my friends and ask, like I had to ask him, dude, what do you mean? <laughs> what, right. what, what are you saying here? And I think that that's maybe, you know, in retrospect, that's one of the reasons why we, we work is because we had to, it was like a, cru- it, was kinda, like, it was like a crucible. You had to, it had to actually communicate. <laughs> We did. It's true. And, it's true. Well, and like, uh, you know, you guys were probably isolated linguistically a little bit. I'm imagining neither of you were fluent. Yes, that is that is very true. And on top of all of that, this is in 2004. Uh, so the the presidential election was happening at the time, and the um, uh, Bush had just asked the the government of the Czech Republic to to send soldiers into Iraq, and uh, so there was a lot going on and, and um, I remember kind of kind of having to, to have the, the conversation with myself, you know, really clearly for the first time uh, about the fact that I'm an American and what is that, what does that mean to me? Because you're in a place where the, the first thing that people see is that you're an American, you know, yeah, like, it's, it's, you, you know, it's you, hard to hide you, it. You want it, you want to try to like blend in and it's like, no, you stay. Oh, up. sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not possible, you know, and, and it's, it's, the, it's the first, I mean, of course it's the first thing that comes up in conversation. You know, you and I start talking to one another and it's like, I'm from Chicago and you know, I, I teach and I do this, but there it's, hi, you're an American. Here's what this means. And, you know, so I would get questions, you know, very immediately upon meeting people like, hi, you're an American. There's an election soon in your country. Who are you voting for? Like, like right off the bat. Wow. Uh, it would be like, uh, I'm going to vote for Kerry. And they would say, great. Now we can defense. Really? It was that uh, intense? It, it was incredibly intense. It was, uh, there was, um, you know, the, you know, just even watching CNN and, and, you know, getting Newsweek magazine are, are not the same as we get here in the United States. You're watching CNN international and you're, you're reading Newsweek international, which are you know different publications and they have different focuses. And so all of the media that we were taking in was, um, was very anti-Bush and, and it was interesting. It's, it's interesting to think about, like it, it didn't occur to me that he could possibly win because all the media sources um, that I was surrounded with, you know, and, and again, this is 2004. So it was less about the media sources that I was actively seeking, you know, like now, I think with people, you know, the, our media sources are, you know, so much of it is filtered through social media. And so you're, you're making choices to follow certain places and, and often those are more like-minded, right? But at this time, you know, just you turn on the television, you pick up a newspaper and, and this is what you're going to see. So um, since so much of it, not all of it, I can't even say all of it was, was so anti-Bush, it just, it didn't, it didn't enter my head that that it would it would be a possibility for for him to that was like the most it, that was like the most depressing night of my life. I got a little drunk. I was out. Of, I went to watch the returns at a bar, which is a horrible mistake. Mm, <laughs> and I yep. mean, when they came in and they called it, I'll never forget. Like the mood in the bar was just like uh, like someone had died. It was awful. Ugh. It was. It was. Yes. It was. It was really awful where where we were too. And and it, I, I think especially because. It, 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 you have to grapple with the fact that at least, you know, where, where I was, what I would, 
not you. What I was having to grapple with was the the. God, I'm I'm not trying to be careful with my words. I'm just trying to to be precise here in in, in what I'm saying. But the we would get comments like why the hell did people in your country do this? Right. Like you're supposed to know. And, <laughs> yeah. Like, like I'm, like I'm supposed to speak for everybody. And, um, and, it, and again, like, I, I think I take that experience back and, and I, I think about it now in the classrooms where, you know, where someone will ask one of my students to speak for an entire identity group that they do not entirely represent. You know, like say if I have one student in the class who is a color or if they identify as LGBTQ, you know, then, then everyone is like, well, tell me about everyone. Or, you know, t- tell me what your people think. It's like, <laughs> like one per. I mean, we are many, 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 many voices with many, many, many different opinions. And that's why we need to read as many books as possible. But that's a, that's kind of a, an, another tangent. It, it was just it, it is such a I think a, a truth of of one singular person being asked to speak for an entire community when, when that is is not their job and and not and not real. Um and and it was that time in my life, I, I think, when uh, after Bush won and, and I was in Prague and, and I was being asked to, to kind of speak for the American people. Uh, and I was kind of pissed at, at at the American people, although I am the American. But, you know, it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Even it's this great kind of circular well, and I can find myself. Thing. I can find myself like as much as I uh, was, di- you know, disappointed that year, and as much as like I was like disillusioned about what we were doing. Uh, I can also remember like being overseas and having people say really negative things uh, about America, and sort of like recoiling a little bit or like defending it. And but then I start. Then I start to think to myself like you know, the United States has such a big impact on so many different countries that you sort of have to be Mm -hmm. you have to be patient people are you know you can think to yourself like wait a minute you live in the czech republic what are you you know so concerned with like what's going on in american politics or why do you have such Mm -hmm. a strong opinion about my home and then it's like well you know we're kind of everywhere in a way that a lot of countries are Mm -hmm. not and so i think they have a right to to you know have an interest oh absolutely absolutely I, I think especially when you just see with with that request for Czech soldiers to be a part of right. uh, Iraq, you know, I, and so so I absolutely I absolutely think it's it's the case. And, did, did you ever um, bristle? Did you ever bristle? Were you ever like, hey, just chill? Like I, you know, I don't know. Or you know, <laughs> I no, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I I I definitely said I don't know, but yeah. it wasn't it wasn't bristling. I I, I don't think I. I think it was just one of those. It, it, it's kind of like when my kid will ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. You know, like, and you want to, and, and he has even said, well, why don't you know? Moms are supposed to know everything. And I'm like, well, this is going to be fucking disappointing life for you. <laughs> my, my son. Um, but it, you know, and you know, that, that was a couple of years ago and now he'll be like, it's okay, mom, you can Google it. And I'm like, well, that's a whole nother kind of ball, ball of wax here. But no, I, I never felt, um, Bristled. I, I, I think I, I just felt. Well, I mean, or discriminated against, like you know, like somehow. Like, hey, it's, yeah, it's no. Not me, but you never felt like that because I remember being like, hey, no, it's not no, me. it's not me. I didn't. Yeah, do it. yeah. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely felt like I needed to say, hey, these are not my beliefs. Right. Um, but I think I was also kind of realizing, hey, my my belief system needs to be, um, I I, I need to be educated a little bit. Like I need to start seeing the world in a wider way, and and I think that um, 
but it's interesting because it, at the time I thought I did, you know, I, I thought like I had kind of this wide worldview and, um, and I read a lot and I, I, I listen a lot and, 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 and what do these things mean? And, and, and it was very definitely a moment where I learned that I had, a, that I have a lot to learn. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. I, I, I like having that feeling. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've, and I, I kind of, I, I try to welcome it because I mean, we, we, we try to be better than we ever thought we could be. We try to be a, a better person or a better writer or a better teacher or a better parent, you know, and that comes from learning about the world. Things are changing all of the time and, and it's not possible to keep up with everything. Yeah. Pat, I just took your little tiny question and sort of blew it up to this whole, like, what is life <laughs> fucking enormity no but it's um, great and i think travel off like i think traveling is important for a lot of reasons but that's one of the principal ones is it's just you can't get mm-hmm. that i mean you can get that from books to an extent but it, i think it's really healthy for people if they can do it um and it's like you know it's a privilege it's a privilege to be able to do it but if you can get out of wherever you live and go live somewhere else uh that experiential mm-hmm. learning is sort of uh, mm-hmm. ir- you know irreplaceable you can't find something as a substitute that can do quite what that can do Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking about it a little bit because uh, one of my one of my students had given uh, kind of a, a presentation on the writer Anne Petrie, who I really love, and and one of the things that that she taught us was that that Petrie, for a while at least, would work for a year and then take a year off to write, and then work for a year and take a year off to write. And I, I'd never thought about that before, right? And and I know that that just even hearing that presentation, and this is before I I made the decision to move to Prague when I heard it but but just to think okay this is something that I can that I can try this is something doable like I'm and and to just save the cash for a year like I had a savings account I pretended it it didn't exist so I I guess just the 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 point that I want to try to make with that is is these like these things are possible to to um to like it's 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 not yeah it's it's not a it is not a a thing that like can be done tomorrow necessarily but um what do you want to try right really what like what what do you want to try yeah and uh, you know if you have the if you have the financial discipline to just save your money and and you're willing to live frugally you can and you can mm-hmm. you, i mean i guess prague in 2004 the exchange wasn't as good as it had been historically but yeah it was still absolutely. Was, it, was it cheaper i mean it was cheap cheaper to live there it was cheaper yeah yeah our our place was like I think like 400 bucks a month, something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, yeah, so so it was easy. I mean, of course, now I have this little kid, so it would be... More expensive. It would be, yeah. And and logistically involved, so... Yeah, because you... he should be, he should, you know, we have to, like, educate them, right? right? Like, we have to put them in school and that sort of thing. Unfortunately. <laughs> I always think, like, <laughs> she, she'll, you know, she'll learn so much just if we go travel, you know? Like, she'll learn yeah. more than sitting inside. And maybe there's some truth to that, but... I also feel like you, you want to create a certain stability. You know, you don't want to like be uprooting yeah. them and they start to get attached to their friends mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that sort of keeps you here. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm curious, did you get a book done while you were living in Prague? Did you make substantial headway on a, a project or did you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I ended up finishing a story collection that I then came back and I tried for a long time to, to kind of sell. And then I, I kept getting those that, kind of lovely letters back from agents that would say, we love the writing. We can't sell a short story collection. So, um, so send us your novel. Right. Um, so I got a lot of those and then I started writing a novel in order to get somebody to look at my short story collection, which is a really awful reason to write a book. 
Um, and, uh, and so it's just kind of sitting in this material in my head. And then this kind of really lovely thing happened where I got really excited by it. And right around that time, a, a friend of mine, uh, Dan Sinker, who I don't know if you know, Dan, he did the at Mary Manual Twitter feed for a while. And he, he does a lot of work with, with digital publication. He ran uh, Punk Planet for, for several years, but he sent me kind of some information about some friends of his who um, run a great literary journal called Joyland. And they were putting out uh, um, short story collections and they were looking for them. So I sent it to them. They picked it up. And that was my first book. It came out in 2011. It's called Everyone Remain Calm. Okay. And most of the stories in there I wrote, I wrote when I was in Prague. Okay, cool. That's I mean, because usually you hear the story about somebody going overseas, and it's like, I went over there to write the great American novel, and I wound up just like drinking and <laughs> wandering around. Or it can go. I mean, you can get distracted easily, or it's like the thing where you were, that you were talking about, where you you just have too much time, and then there's too much stimulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sort of have had that. You know, like, I think like personally, like I work better when there's tension uh, in my schedule, and I work better when mm-hmm. um, you know there's not some beautiful you know, exotic location calling my name out the door. Right, 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 right. So I guess, you know, but you managed to to pull it off. And then, um, you know, you come back to Chicago, you picked up work again at Columbia. Mm -hmm. You sort of had a soft landing because that's that's the other part of the travel. I did, yeah. That's the other part of the travel experience that's difficult. And and I was, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, the author who, uh, you know, works for a year and then comes back or then goes, you know, and writes for a year and then works for a year. That's great if you can find the work, you know, like sure. if the job, yeah. if the job is there, but you know, when you yep. go, when you go abroad, you know, the hard part is reentry a lot of time, you know, you, the year abroad mm-hmm. is great. And then the money runs out and you come home and it's like, Oh shit, you know, now what do I do? But mm-hmm. Did you have a, did you orchestrate that? I did, you know, and also, I mean, again, that this all happened, I mean, this was a decade ago, it was pre-recession. It, it was, um, it was definitely easier. It, it was definitely easier. I, I don't, I don't know if it, it definitely would not have been able to happen in the same way now. Yeah. Um, so I am grateful that I had that time and I'm grateful that I, that I tried. Sure. Um, yeah, you to do uh, it. I'm, I'm but jealous. Yeah, yeah. I, I envy you. Yep. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, got, got back in, slid back into the teaching and, uh, had a baby. and kind of went. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Which changed a lot. I mean, right. Like making the adjustment, oh. like in your writing life, your creative life, you know, that's obviously like a game changer. It's a game changer in a lot. Yeah. Of ways, yeah. You know, it. like, I, th- I think like, like I was saying at the beginning, it's, it's easier. It's easier now. He's in school. He's, he has so many things going on that he's really excited about. Um, he, you know, he is very happy to spend an hour making the dining room into you know, the inside of an airport and to throw boxes everywhere and to, you know, to have with scissors. I, I just read his, um, like his progress report from his teachers and, you know, like they list all the things about, you know, his social behaviors and his math and his reading and art. And, and then the, on the, under the comment section, it says, um, Caleb, uh, Caleb loves scissors very much. <laughs> like that's, that's really, uh, alarming, alarming. There's been a lot of alarming moments. We lived in the, he was three, we were living on the third floor and he thought he was Superman and he was totally convinced that he could fly. And he would like lean against the, the glass door on our balcony and he would say, mommy, let me out. I can do it. I can do it. So we like padlocked the, 
the door over the the balcony because I because what I mean what if God, there, there's part of me that wants to be like God what if he could <laughs> what if he could fly what if he could fly and <laughs> I was got a holding future. him back right um, yeah um, but uh, but anyway it's it's easier now I, I think that there you know there there were the few years of 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 fogginess a, a little bit. I, there, there's a, this essay in the book. Um, it's called Channel B, and, and it, it was a little bit of a, a game changer for me. It was in, included in the Best American Essays of 2013, and, and it was about that first, those first few months uh, and postpartum depression and, and what it was like to kind of try to find yourself again after that, uh, after wife, that beginning. And, my wife had that when we had our, I mean, just for, she had uh, like postpartum OCD after the, baby was mm-hmm. born and it was like you know it was once she took, got some medication it went away but it was it was freaky right. man I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think a lot yeah. of women a lot of women i don't think i think a lot of women go through some version of like postpartum blues uh but i don't think it gets talked about a lot and mm-hmm. you know i feel like maybe mother like new mothers especially feel like if they admit to it then they're you know they're not good mothers or it's a you know i don't know it just feels sort of taboo but i the more you if it happens to you and then you start talking to people it's like oh yeah i had that too i couldn't stop crying or you know like how intense mm-hmm. how intense was your situation <clears throat> you know i it it was it was it was pretty intense i, I think i mean you totally hit the, the nail on the head with with what you just said it, like for me it wasn't like my my gauge was Brooke Shields' Down Came the Rain, like that, like her, like that memoir about, um, you know, like being suicidal and, and just like that kind of darkness. And, and since I thought, well, you know, what I'm experiencing is not that, that therefore it's not postpartum depression. And, um, so you, and were, I'm okay, you, were not, you were not at that level where you were like suicidal? And... No, no, I was not there. Okay. Um, I was not there. But I, I think it's really true that there are all sorts of different levels and that, and that we're afraid to, to talk about them. Like, since that essay came out, I, the thing that's just been floored is the, the flooring for me is the, just the emails that I get. And, right. Um, mostly from women, but, but from some men too, like from some new dads or, you know, from other women who, you know, whose partners just had children and, and just kind of like how, um, I, how do we, how are we able to, to talk about this thing? You know, and I, and I, I hadn't really thought when I was writing that, I hadn't really thought like, okay, well, I want to put this out in the world so that we can talk about it. But it's, it's really blown my mind how rarely we do. And I, I would just love to take like all of these women who are going through it and, and put us like all together in one huge big football field so we can <laughs> even just see that you're not, but like, look at how many of us there are. Look at, well, it's look a- at this. And like, even though you're sitting there and, and you are so alone. You like it. It is like the the chain is strong here. Like yeah. I like I'm here. Sure. Well, and I, I think like too. Like this is what it. Like you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But you know, giving birth, the whole process. Big. It's a huge biological event. And when you have the baby, you go from like one day you're like fully pregnant, and then the next day this thing's out of you, and there's like this big, huge hormonal shift and. I mean, your body and your mind are going to, I mean, it seems logical that there would be, um, at least, you know, for many people, like a, a response to that of some sort, you know, like it just, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, that, that make, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, I just remember like, you know, it, it started to happen like a week or two after my daughter was born, like whenever the sun would go down, my wife would just start weeping, you know, and I'd be like, what's mm-hmm. going on? She, I would be like, what's going yep. on? And she'd be like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, it was like mm-hmm. super freaky, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's something. I do. Going. I do. Yeah. The, the thing that, that 
ended up happening and this is kind of what the essay is about, but I, I had one of those. Did you have one of these things? One of those video baby monitors? No, we, we only got the audio because I felt like if we got the video, we would both like obsessively watch it. <laughs> well, the, yes, 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 you do. I did. Yeah. But the thing is, is that we lived, we lived in this condo. We lived in a condo and somebody in the neighbor, you know, it's like super close to, you know, you're living on your sardines, right? You're living on top of each other. And so somebody else must have had the same monitor. And it had like the A channel and the B channel in case you had two kids in separate rooms. And so on my on the A channel, I saw my baby, and on the B channel, I saw somebody else's baby. Whoa! Did you so, did you so know this? Were you aware? I mean, this was not like a surprise. Like you figured it out. You knew the baby. Uh, I, well, yeah. I mean, I was just I was sitting there one night and I was watching my baby to make sure like it didn't choke or die or or anything. And then I I was like, hey, what's this little like? What's this thing? And then I flipped on the channel B, and there was another baby. <laughs> Which was not, I mean, it, like it was in a, you know, different, uh, it's like, oh, shit, what, like, what is this? Um, and, uh, and so what happened to me is that I, I, I wanted to see the other mother is kind of what I wanted. Cause you, I mean, again, you want, you want to know that you're not alone in this. So right. I would, I would, for me, it was less about looking at the other baby and more about listening to the other mother. That's interesting. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but there were all sorts of other factors involved. I mean, again, this is in Chicago. This isn't in the middle of the winter. Like my, my kid came early and my husband had to go shovel out the car, which I can't like trying to think about the stress of on that poor man. Like I go into labor and we're completely unprepared for it. And then the, the car is buried from the snowstorm and he has to run out. Oh, God. And it's like, it's like, dude, like we, like we are le- like this, this kid is coming. Like it is happening. Oh. Like we're, we are in this shit, like shovel faster. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, um, so anyway, so it was, it was just it was so cold and so frozen and, 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 you know, like not a lot of access to, you know, getting outside and seeing other people. And my husband was, like took on a he like took on a this like night designing kind of freelance job because I had taken the semester off of work blah 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 like the whole kind of nine yards that parents are going through all of the time and and I mean and and, and at the end of the day we were lucky because we well for a million different reasons but we had we had health insurance and um and he was able to take on the second job and so so there are all there were all sorts of things that 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 made our situation lucky and that that we're grateful for but also like it's it's a mess I mean whatever whatever you've got going on like that, that time period. And, um, and so, uh, so I would, I would, wa- I would watch the thing looking for the other mom. Wow. That's fascinating. And I, that's why I'm glad I don't have a video. Cause I live in an apartment building. I'd be sitting here, uh, as soon as we finish the conversation, uh, tuning in to like watch other parents. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I saw a, a couple of years later, I saw an article, um, it was on slate about, people like stalking one another with baby monitors. And, and at the end of the article, it taught, like it, it brought up my essay. My, the essay was originally published on the, the rumpus and, but it, and, and so at the very end, it like brought up my essay as the counterpoint of like how this stalking can be used to heal women from this, from this horrible thing. And it was, it was sort of interesting to, to look at it in that context. But I mean, for, for me, it was a, it, it helped me heal. You know, it helped me, it helped me get through. So. Okay. Well, you uh, you have this essay collection out. You've done a story collection. Um, so you've you've done both. You've written fiction. You've written nonfiction. Do you have a preference? Mm-hmm. 
no. I, I think I think it, it depends on it depends on what I want to say with the piece and um, and how it comes out. I mean, right now, at this moment, right at the second, I'm certainly more interested in fiction just because I'm a little sick of myself. Right. Um, and uh, but I'm sure that it's gonna it's gonna come back around because things always happen, and you, you want to you know you want to comment and you want to add to the dialogue in some way. Like my, my house, the, my building caught on fire last month and you know and it was kind of that crazy you have to get out in five minutes so what are you going to take kind of experience and and so like there's an essay buzzing around in my head about that in some way but but at the most part for the most part right now I'm like all right let's get up into the the imagination my my favorite writer is Gabriel Garcia Marquez and you know he he passed away last week and and so it's been sort of this like massive week of rereading everything by him ever so, like, my head right now is, you know, full of chairs flying and yellow butterflies <laughs> coming out of, you know, leprosy sores and women who are spiders. And um, and it's an interesting, but like, I mean, even as I'm sitting here right now, I'm in this I'm in this conference room, but, like, I can imagine the tidal wave of lava coming down the hallway outside. Um, and that's a, that's a really lovely way to walk through life. Well, we can look forward to what, I mean, I, I'm imagining it'll be... I mean, do you like magical realism? I mean, is that something you, you, actually, yes. okay. So we'll look forward. Yes. To yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been great talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. I congratulate you on the collection and uh, wish you well on uh, whatever comes next. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. That's Megan Steelstra. Her book once again is called once I was cool. It's available now from curbside splendor. You can find her online at meganstielstra.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Twitter. Uh, and on Twitter, her handle is at Megan Steelstra. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, either. Don't forget about it. The free, official Other People app. It's available now uh, anywhere that apps are available. And uh, it's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all... Uh, you can access the full archives via the app. That's how you can get access to everything. Every single one of the uh, 200 and what, 276 episodes, you get that through the app. So you get the most recent 50 for free, and then if you want, you sign up for premium. It's 2 bucks a month or uh, 5 bucks for 6 months or eight ninety nine for a full year of access, a one-time payment of eight ninety nine, and then you get billed every year. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> You either get billed monthly or biannually or annually, and it's all very cheap. I think if you do the annual plan, it comes out to like 60-something cents a month. And then you have access to every single episode, whenever you want it, wherever you go. So please do that. Uh, you can hear my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tom Parada, uh, Edwidge Dantica, Tao Lin, Sheila Hetty. Uh, there's a whole slew. There's a plethora. Cheryl Strayed, David Shields. Eric Larson. You get the idea. So go, please go get the app. The app itself is free. Uh, otherwise, friendship, fraught human relationships, delicacy, tragedy, the human animal, the complexity of it, language, how to simplify. And then also something I failed to mention at the front end, just the brutality of it when you move. As you get older, the weeding out process, deciding which friendships to uh, cultivate and to hang on to and which ones to let go of. It's sort of like the uh, guest list at your, at your wedding. Somebody barely misses the cut. 
I mean, sure, there are plenty of people that you just don't want to invite, but there's always like a group of people who are like almost made it. <laughs> that strikes me as being horrible. And the same thing is true with these friendships. You decide to take some people with you and the other ones, uh, you let those wither and die. Please remember that Juna Barnes wrote in bed wearing makeup with her hair done and that Tolstoy was abusive to his servants. That's it for now. Thanks once again to Megan Steelstra. Thanks to Curbside Splendor. Thanks to you for listening. I appreciate that. And I will be back again soon. Enjoy your day. Try to keep it simple. Try to streamline. Try to foster a community. Try to cultivate a community in your local neighborhood. <laughs> I feel like simplicity is a theme. It's a recent theme on the show. Maybe I guess it's a theme in my life. I think I want to live in a small village. I think I want to join a rainbow gathering. Ew.